being aware of who you are and finding your voice are very different things. I was never going to enter a career that was about lining my own pockets. Every career move I've made, everything that I do is always about bringing people along with me, making the world better and even in some small capacity than it was before I found it. Being true to that, that's how I think I started to find my voice over time. I think it probably, it took some time when I finally started to understand the importance of boundaries and creating space for yourself to just be quiet and have time for yourself and and hear your own voice instead of running through life checking boxes, which I did for a long time, you know, like go to college, get married, get a better job, get a master's degree. Uh, To some extent, I was doing some of those things because it was just what we were supposed to do. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of forethought of what do I actually want? Welcome, I'm your host, Nino Cataneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Debbie Kleiman, a veteran of the Boston startup world and author of the book, First Pitch. We had a long discussion about what it takes to be a founder, the different paths you can take, and the importance of community. Our guest today is also an expert in communities. Tangia Alawaji Estrada is a storyteller, business builder, and a PR consultant. She's the co-founder of BIPOC Podcast Creators, the premier resource for Black, Indigenous, people of color identified creators across the podcasting space. In our conversation, we discussed what it took her to find the right calling, how she decided to step away from a successful career as a campaign director in politics, and how, after starting a podcast, she blended her passion and expertise to start BIPOC podcast creators. I'm sure you will find her story inspiring, and you will also find practical advice on how to start a community. Enjoy. I'm going to start with the same question that I ask all my guests. Tell us about who you are, what you're doing, and sort of what took you here, and you can take as little or as long as you want. Okay, well, I try to be concise because, you know, who wants to listen to somebody drone on forever? No one. So my name is Tangia. I am the co-founder of BIPOC Podcast Creators, which is an online community for digital creators in the podcasting space who also happen to be people of color. It is both a networking community and a consulting firm. So we also work with media companies, nonprofits who are interested in multicultural audience engagement and just general consulting around podcasting stuff. And I am also the owner of a boutique public relations and branding agency called Tangia Renee PR. What is your origin story? How did you, did you start your career into PR? Yes, I started in PR sort of without really even understanding that that's what I was doing. I actually came into PR through politics. Um, so while I was in college and undergrad, I, I did get a degree in political science. And while I was getting that degree, I volunteered and got involved with a lot of you know, local politics stuff and nonprofits. And I started volunteering with this nonprofit that needed help 
doing community engagement, of course, I was just, you know, like a volunteer. They didn't tell me what I was doing and that there was an actual language around it. But that was how I first cut my teeth. It was for an organization called the Latina Initiative, and they did a lot of work around reproductive rights and education and that kind of stuff. So they basically used me as their community PR organizer um, in person to go out and find more volunteers and bring people into the organization and help fundraise. And I had a lovely time doing all of that. I learned so much. I didn't know at the time what I was doing was communications and PR and campaigning. But I had those skills. So as I graduated from college and went into career, I actually ended up in politics. (laughs) So I used to run campaigns. I worked for several nonprofits. I did some statewide campaigns. I did some a federal adjacent campaign. And I was always, you know, the campaign director or the communications person. So I handled all of the PR and the fundraising on those campaigns. And I really liked that aspect of the work, but got burned out in politics in general. Um, So I left politics in about 2012-ish and went into nonprofit, co-founded a nonprofit, stayed in the nonprofit world for a little while and got burned out on that and just needed a change. And I went into corporate, which I thought was going to be somehow, I thought it was going to be a lot more fun. (laughs) And I thought I was going to learn so much more. And I really didn't. (laughs) I really came to the skill, to the job with a lot of skills and sort of mastered those skills there. But I, I wouldn't say that I learned a ton more other than that corporate can be really cutthroat, as cutthroat as politics is, and much more boring. And it just wasn't a good fit for me. So I left and started podcasting at that time as a hobby. I started a small sort of wellness business while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, utilizing my business development and PR skills. I did that for a little while. And then around 2018 was when I decided I wanted to transition from listening to podcasts to starting podcasts. And the reason why I started a podcast is because I just wanted to learn how to podcast. I thought someday I will come up with a really great idea for a show and then I'll go make that podcast. But in the meantime, I'm a very much a hands-on learner. The only way I'm really going to learn this is if I just go and do this, you know, like reading a book or taking a class or whatever is not going to work for me. So I got in contact with a friend of mine. Her name is Michelle Talbert, and she runs her power space, which is a co-working space in Florida, like the Miami area. She was an OG podcaster. I think she started podcasting like 2008-ish. She was, I like to say that she was probably the first Black woman in podcasting. I don't know if that's true, but I got to think that around 2008, she probably was (laughs) at least one of the only ones. We certainly recognize her as such on this podcast. Yes. So in, in Tangia's world, she was the first one. And anyways, I called her up and I was like, so I, w- I really want to learn how to podcast. And I know that you know this. And why don't you start a podcast? And she was like, I'm not going to start another podcast. I'm sort of, I, my podcasting journey has ended. And I was like, okay, would you co-host a podcast with me? And she was like, mm, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> And I was like, okay, can you just like spend a couple hours with me and tell me how to start a podcast? And I told her the idea I had for a show, which was going to be about sort of like a hidden figures, the movie in podcast form. And she was like, look, 
I don't want to do a podcast with you. I will help you start this podcast. I will co-host it with you for one season for like 30 days. So basically the challenge from her, from Michelle was like, you will learn how to produce a podcast in 30 days. We'll do as many episodes as you want. But once we're done, we're like, we're done. I'm giving you the files. You're going to take what you learned and you're going to do whatever you're going to do with it. And I was like, great. So over a two week period, we recorded something like 24 episodes. And I decided that those episodes would be released in the month of March to coincide with Women's History Month. So she showed me what to do, gave me the basics. I used, you know, I've always been a Mac user. So I used GarageBand because it was already on, on my computer, right? And, and sort of on the fly, learned how to quickly, very basic edits to the podcast, put it out. On the last three episodes, I, I recorded an intro that was like, hey, this podcast is going away after these last three episodes. If you like the podcast, DM me and let me know. Otherwise, it's gone forever. No hard feelings. I'll see you at some point in the future when I have another podcast idea. And then I scheduled those episodes to go out. They posted on schedule. And then a couple weeks later, I started getting DMs. And so I got like 50-ish, 50, maybe 75 DMs from people that were like, no, 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 bring the show back. And I was like, okay, so maybe I do have a good idea for a podcast. So that podcast is, that's what she did podcast, still around, have completed seven seasons of it so far. It's a show about women, leaders, innovators, and rebels that you don't already know. And I brought it back for another season, right? And at the end of that season, I did the same thing of season two. I said, hey, if you like this podcast, you got to let me know. Give me some DMs. I'll bring it back. If not, no hard feelings. I'll come up with another idea, right? And I just kept doing that until we ended up with seven seasons. And now I'm trying to figure out, are we doing an eighth season? Is it time to sort of let it go at this stage? (laughs) If any listener here is a fan of that's what she did, you know what you got to (laughs) do. You got to slide into my DMs if you want it back. Actually, recently, I, I have, I've heard from several people who just, you know, either messaged me or I saw some people recently at some events that I was at and they were like, so are you bringing the podcast back? It's <laughs> like, do you want me to? And they were like, yeah. So I have to figure out if I actually have the capacity to do that. So, it, But it still exists. You can go listen to it wherever you download your podcast from. So let's see, where are we? Okay, so... Well, I actually, I want to interrupt you for a second, because as you were telling your story and and how you started out, there's something that struck me. What's that? You started your career working in places where you had a tremendous amount of responsibility and accountability, but very little formal authority, Yeah, which for many people is a kiss of death. As you think about how you are leading the different entities that you're leading right now. What are the lessons that you got in those years when you were you know, running your first volunteer campaign as an intern recruiting other interns? And what are the lessons that you got there and how do they translate in how you lead now? A common theme for me is that when I feel something, like I feel it and I just go for it. And that's probably one of my strengths is that if I feel like I'm on a path and I like that path and I want to do something with it, then I just, 
I just go do it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is it going to work? Maybe I should take a class. Maybe I should, you know, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. For the most part, I just run headfirst into it and I learn on the fly and I find that that's the best way to learn. And the the respect and the, the formal leadership roles, the titles, whatever, those come along with the territory as you get better. And I, I find that they start to develop organically as folks see that you know what you're doing and that you're creating results. Uh, so I worry, you know, it's, it's a different path for me. I worry less about the end results and get very committed to the process. And that's, that's just how I work. So for a lot of people, that feels messy and... I don't know, unsure. And I'm fine with that. My process is messy, right? You know, in everyday life from day to day, or if you're just watching from, <laughs> from abroad, like if you walk up, you know that I've been in a space working on it because it's messy. There's stuff all over. There's like 30 different colors of pens and there's stacks of notebooks and there's post-it notes all over the people. And that's just the way I roll. It's not this highly organized, super thought out campaign of steps, right? I have a strategy in my head because that's just the way I think, but I don't necessarily stop to write it all down. Like I have a picture in my head of where I'm going and I just run at that picture. And I have found throughout my career, that's when I can really be my most authentic self. I, when I'm not listening too much to the noise around me and I'm not sitting through a class or whatever, I'm just going with my instincts and, you know, some people it, that does not work for them. I, you know, I don't need recognition for most of the things that I do. I do them because they feel right to me. And that's a lesson that I try to carry with me because in times when I have tried it in a different way where I felt unsure about something and I was like, ah, oh, let me go take this class and learn everything I can about it first and then come up with a plan and then do it, which is sort of the way we're taught to do things in, in our formal education. When I try to do things that way, it doesn't work. I get like to step three and I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I can't even like, it's just too much. It's too hard. Like, I don't have the attention to for the forget it. I'm gonna go do something else. That's fascinating. And as you think about the progression of your life and career, when did you start really kind of being conscious about like who you wanted to be as a person, what your voice was professionally, if you will? You use the term authenticity. So what were the things that were true and authentic to you? I think that I've always been aware, I've had some level of awareness of who I want to be, type of person I aspire to be. Being aware of who you are and finding your voice are very different things. And I think you'd go on your own journey with them. I have always just known that who I am is somebody that that wants to leave things better than I found them. So I've, I've always was going to work in some capacity that was about that, right? That had an element of community or justice or just improving the world around me in some fashion. It's why I didn't become like a stockbroker, right? Not that there aren't stockbrokers out there doing good in the world. I'm sure that there's a few, right? But it's, it's, I was never going to enter a career that was about lining my own pockets. Every career move I've made, everything that I do is always about bringing people along with me, making the world better, and even in some small capacity than it was before I found it. 
And in that, being true to that, that's how I think I started to find my voice over time. I think it probably, it took some time. I was well into campaigning when I finally started to understand the importance of boundaries and creating space for yourself to just be quiet and have time for yourself and and hear your own voice instead of running through life checking boxes, which I did for a long time, you know, like go to college, get married, get a better job, get a master's degree. Uh, To some extent, I was doing some of those things because it was just what we were supposed to do. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of forethought of what do I actually want? And so I learned over time that you have to give yourself the space to tap in and hear your own voice and understand, are you doing something just because you think it's what you're supposed to do? Or is it actually meaningful to you? I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I got. (laughs) That completely answers my question. And it's a theme that I touch upon a lot in this podcast is the transition from doing things because others expect us to do them. You know, whether it's our parents, our peers, our family, our friends, we have an opportunity that all our friends would love to have. It doesn't feel right for us, but we feel that we should do it. And then get into the point of, as you said, do the things because they're meaningful to you. Uh, That transition doesn't always come easy. There's always some very scary moments. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to share like a scary moment when you said, you know, I should be doing this, but I'm actually going to do that. So there was a time, so this happened in around 2012-ish. It was the time that I was trying to figure out if I was going to leave the campaign trail or what was I going to stay in campaigns? What was I doing with myself? And it was really tough. I was unhappy and I was having a difficult time understanding why, because I was in the career, right? Like I had the important title and the big job and I was completely burned out and burnout is not not just about working too much. You have much deeper problems happening if you're fully burned out, right? And I was having a lot of health problems, like a lot. I was, I kept getting respiratory infections. I was in the doctor all the time. I was breaking out in hives on my hands and my legs and feet, chronic migraines, like two or three migraines a week, like really just debilitating insomnia, chronic insomnia. And I went to several doctors and all they would do is like give me a sleeping pill, which I which I wouldn't wouldn't take because I can't handle pharmaceuticals. Like I cannot take a sleeping pill. My body can't take it. I'm just very lightweight when it comes to those things. So I wasn't finding solutions. Um, my marriage was starting to fall apart because I was working so much. Unless you've ever done a campaign, a political campaign, people don't understand the level of pressure you're under. You're 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 doing 60 hour weeks during the campaign season, especially when you're getting close to election day. You're never home. You don't have a life. There's a lot of alcoholism that happens in that field because it's a coping (laughs) mechanism, right? So all of this stuff was happening and I was super unhappy. And then I just hit a wall physically. There was a day that I couldn't like, I couldn't get out of bed. Physically, I could not will myself to get out of bed and I was trying Um, And I went to the doctor and the doctor I had been seeing wasn't there that day. They sent me up with this 
older guy. He was like an old man, like close to retirement age. This old school dark doctor. He was Turkish. And I go in and he's like looking at my charts and he does like a whole exam. And I, and he, like, I was like, you know, I can't figure out, like I couldn't get out of bed. Like I physically couldn't move. Like, like something was weighing me down. Like there's something wrong with me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, you need to quit your job. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, you need to quit your job. You need to go on vacation. He said, I don't know. He goes, I don't know. Maybe you need to get a divorce. <laughs> I just looked at him because I couldn't believe. I was like, what? And he goes, there's nothing wrong with you. You're stressed. That's what's wrong with you. You have too much stress. And he said, and you're young and you're not enjoying your life. So you need to go enjoy your life. Get a different job go on vacation. And he's, and again, he said, he said, I, I don't know what your relationship was like, but maybe you need to get a divorce. <laughs> and, and so that, that day was like a wake up call for me. I went home. My husband was at home. He was at work. And I really thought about that for the day. You know, I took the whole day off because I just felt terrible. My husband and I had been fighting a lot because of the job. And I realized that the doctor was right. My husband was right this job was slowly killing me. <laughs> and I was staying in the job, not because I was enjoying it anymore, but because I felt like I had to, right? I had the title. I, I seemingly had a coveted role that a lot of people wanted. It was highly competitive. I was successful in it, but I was miserable. So at the end of that campaign, I just never did another one. Yeah, that rings really true and very familiar. There was a point during my experience in corporate America where I had to come to terms and be very honest with myself with the fact that in some of the jobs that I took, I really wanted the title, I wanted the compensation, but I wasn't really willing to do the work that it took to get there because I didn't love the job. And I learned that by looking at the people who were really successful and realizing that they loved the work and that's what was driving them. Now, get, don't get me wrong. The compensation and the titles were important because people who are successful in those type of careers are competitive and the compensation and the title are the scorecard, but it wasn't the main driver. So I'm wondering if you look at the people you work with um, who have long-term success in politics, whether you sort of looked at them and had similar conclusions. Yeah, so... Most of the people who were doing what I was doing at that time in the field have left because they came to a similar place in their lives where they were just completely burned out. But many of them are what I would say are campaign adjacent roles, right? They still have a certain inner drive to be in that field that fills them up. And I just don't have it. I just don't. <laughs> it's gone. Like it, it died. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for me at that time, one of the things that was hard for me to let go of was the title, campaign director. That's a coveted role. It's hard to get. It's a lot of responsibility. And once I was able to be like, do I care enough about being called a campaign director to, you know, maybe get a divorce and maybe have a nervous breakdown and <laughs> have to spend my life on medication? No, the answer was no. But folks that I know that still do it, they, you're right, they have this, this inner drive that's about the work. They, don't, they really don't care about the titles because you can't in that, in that field. It's too hard. 
you got to love it. You know, I ran into a friend recently at an event that I was at. She was a campaign director for another campaign that we collaborated on. So I, we, the two campaigns came together to raise a lot of money, right, around this, this one campaign. And she stayed in that field for many years long past I did. Now she's an executive director with a massive nonprofit doing the same work, right, with a little less stress doing the same work and she was just like yeah I'm good I'm good I'm great things are great (laughs) I I could not like I would be dead like literally in the ground right now if I had stayed in that field I think well the great news is you're alive and then I'm gonna venture a little bit of a wild guess here and you can tell me if I'm wrong but Maybe one of the reasons why you chose that field is that there's a natural passion in you and advocating on behalf of others, advancing causes that are important to you. And so it seems to me as I look where you are now that you're doing work that fulfills that needs and mission, if you will, but also does it in a context where you actually also love the work. So tell us a little bit about how did you go from having your own podcast to starting a movement that actually advocates on behalf of BIPOC podcast creators? Again, it was one of those things that I just threw myself into not having much expectation around it. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, so the idea for BIPOC podcast creators started around 2019. I was at Podcast Movement Orlando that year, and that's where I met Maribel, my co-founder for BIPOC Podcast Creators. I went to her talk, and I was like, oh, I, I liked what she had to say. We sort of met, and but we didn't really talk that much because, you know, there was a lot going on. And then there was a networking event at the conference for creators of color that was like co-hosted by Women of Color Podcast. At that time, Women of Color Podcast was probably like the premier group for women of color in podcasting. It was it existed on Facebook at that time. I was a member of it. Maribel was a member of it. At that event, we formally met each other, right? Like we started talking and exchanged names and information and all of that. But one thing that stood out to me at that event is it was like the People of Color Networking event at Podcast Movement. And it was in this room, this kind of small room, literally in the back corner of the venue. And there was, it was standing room only. And so it, it felt a little bit like we got like shoved into a corner. And I didn't appreciate that at all. <laughs> I was like, I don't like the way this feels. And we should probably do something about that. But that idea didn't really go anywhere. It just sort of sat in the back of my head and other people's heads that had been there. We were all kind of thinking it, but not acting on it. And then after the conference, Maribel and I became friends and we started collaborating on different projects. And then one day, Women of Color podcasters decided that they were like closing up shop. They were leaving Facebook. (laughs) The group wasn't going to exist anymore. They were going to, they were shifting their business model a little bit, which made a lot of sense for them. They still exist. They're just in a different way now. Um, Still a great group. And it felt like it left a void in our lives. That was like late 2019. And Maribel and I were like, but we we really use that group a lot. Like we connected with a lot of people. What are we going to do? And then we sort of, I think it was like early 2020, 
we were like, well, what if we just started a new group? Maybe we could get a couple hundred people to join it. We can build more of a community around ourselves, figure out what we want to do, you know, make some new friends. That was just sort of it. So we started the group. And within the first couple of weeks, we had a couple hundred people. And then almost immediately, more people started to join and they started to ask us for things. So we were like, whoa, uh, I guess we really got to get organized here (laughs) and figure some things out. So we started to create different workshops and do a bunch of different things. By the time 2021 rolled around, we realized like the group had grown enough that we realized what we had was a business opportunity on our hands and we needed to figure it out real quick. So we formed the business entity and started really hitting programming hard and really building hard and creating networking events and building in that. And that's how we got to where we are now with around 2000 creator members in the organization, continuing to grow, consulting, um, partnerships. It's going, it's going pretty good considering that we only thought we would have a small little free Facebook community for 200 people. You know, when you think about the way that you want to lead the people that are in this group, the people that work with you, how do you think of yourself as a leader? What are the qualities that you aspire to? Collaboration, I think, is the biggest thing for me. I always feel like I'm at my best when I'm collaborating with other people. I'm just not somebody that creates well in a vacuum, I don't think. I love to have a thought partner. I love to have people to check me, to check my ideas and say, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe you should try this instead, or maybe you should think about things like that in in this way. You know, I really appreciate having different worldviews at the table with me. I think that it makes me a better thinker, which makes me a better leader. That's great. And if somebody came to you for advice, you know, I see what you've done with the BIPOC community. I am thinking about creating a group and a community to support CauseX. What are the one or two things that, you know, you think you would tell them that they should be thinking about? I would say definitely start the community. I think things work best when it's you start at the at the bottom and you really have to be listening to what people want. That's why you start a community first. And if you think about it, even from a brand perspective, the best brands, if you want to have a really good brand, you need two things. You need a community and you need influence because you have to be able to influence the community, right? So the best brands have these communities around them that feel really engaged. They feel that this thing is really important to them. And that could be we're talking about shoes or we're talking about music or podcasting. And so I think the advice is is stop trying to run off and create something in a vacuum that's just the brainchild of yourself. Get out there and talk to people and see if there's actually an appetite for what this thing is that you want to offer. That's great. I, I want to make sure that I, I tap into your expertise on this subject. So obviously, the work that you're doing, it's incredibly important. What are the two or three biggest issues that uh, your community is facing and how can people help? So a couple of the biggest things that come up and are, are key reasons why we have started and stayed with building BIPOC podcast creators. It's community, so networking and access. So our community is mostly made up of independent creators who are trying to build something with staying power, 
something that has sustainability, something that they can, you know, create revenue off of. They're they're little business, small business owners. They're entrepreneurial. So one of the things that creators face, and I've certainly experienced this, is when you come into a space. The first thing that you don't have is a network of people around you to support you and help you grow and get better and be able to ask questions and learn. Um, But you also don't have access because you don't even know who the people are that you should be talking to or paying attention to or just learning from. So we have worked hard to try to be that hub for folks. So we try to make sure that we create access to thought leaders, to power brokers, to advertisers, anybody we can inside the industry that's going to help independent creators get better at what they do, monetize and build a business. And then we also are providing ongoing networking opportunities for them to be able to build community, to build support, find people around them. They're going to help them grow and get better. Okay, that's great. So what are the best ways for people who want to learn more about you and about the BIPOC podcast and about the community, where should they go? So just go to our website, BIPOCpodcastcreators.com. So that's B as in boy, I, P as in Paul, O-C, podcastcreators.com. Anybody is welcome to be on our newsletter list. So we send a newsletter out once a month that has everything that you need to know that's going on in the community. When we have events, They're open community-wide, not just to our creators. They're open really to anybody who is an ally, right? So that means that like, you're not a racist jerk. If you're not a racist jerk, you're welcome to come. (laughs) If you are, please stay home. (laughs) We don't want to see you. (laughs) But anybody else is welcome to come to those things. So we always put them in our newsletter, say, this is what we're doing. This is coming up. We put tips in there, all kinds of information. Um, So I would say get on the newsletter. If you are someone in the industry who's thinking of coming into the industry or a creator of color in the podcasting industry, you're welcome to join the community. Um, Again, you can join directly from our website. There's a little join button. It's free to join. Or you can just find us on Facebook, BIPOC Podcast Creators. Great. We're now going to move to the personal section of the podcast. So what is an interest or a hobby that you have and how has it maybe impacted your professional life? Well, I would consider podcasting a hobby for sure and a passion. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious to see how that's informed my work. (laughs) It's become my work. What else? I love to travel, right? And I, I would consider that a passion and a hobby as well. I think it informs what I do because it's, it's about exploration and experience and joy. And I hope I have that in my work. And I think I've learned over time that it's important to have those things in my work. And it's probably why when I decide to do something, there isn't some big grand plan. It's just like, this is the direction I'm going and I'm off. Right. And I think that fulfills a little bit of that sense of adventure and exploration that I, that I have inherently and, and probably also why I love travel so much. That's fantastic. Now, this is my favorite question of the podcast. Every era has little cliches or business expressions that are so overused that they become useless. Which is one that drives you crazy? It's hustle. Like this hustle culture thing that has happened in the last, I don't know, five years or whatever is very strange to me. And what it is now is a meme 
And it's a way to sell people a program. And that's all that it is. It doesn't have any meaning anymore. And I think it's, it's important to have hustle, right? It's important to be able to move and, and get up and do what you're going to, whatever you got to do. But like I grew up in the 90s, right? So I grew up on gangster rap. And a hustler was somebody that like started with nothing and made something. And I can respect that. Right. I don't I don't come from money. My family is just a regular middle class family. Anything that I've been able to do, I had to hustle and figure it out. Now hustle is about like being able to roll around in a Bentley, like working, you know, work work 20 hours a day, make as much money as you can, buy a Bentley. And I don't think that I I I just find no value in that. And I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's a sad thing to aspire to. There's so many great things about being alive that have nothing to do with name brands and jewelry and luxury this, luxury that. And if you buy into this new idea of hustle, then I think you miss it completely. Very wise. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can answer both if you want or just pick one. So if you go the food for the body route, a recipe, a food or a drink, or if you go the food for the soul route, anything that's related to art, it could be a book, a movie, a piece of music, a piece of art, but something that right now you're finding nourishing for yourself. I would say, you know, food for the soul are, I do love, I love to read. I don't have as much time anymore because I, I have a two and a half year old now. And so, <laughs> um, but when I can, I love to just disappear into a book for an hour or so. And that's so just like calming to me. I can disconnect completely. And I read a, a variety of different things, but I love that. Um, I love to take a book sometimes or even an audiobook and take a bubble bath. <laughs> With like all of the candles and like all of the things and the soft lighting. I love to do that. And that's just so, I find it so calming. I experience being oversensitized sometimes, like just being completely overstimulated. I was earlier this year, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. And so that like being able to go sit in a hot bubble bath with a book is... Like it just fixes all of that. And I feel like I can come out of that and I'm like ready to fight again. (laughs) So is there a book recently or not so recently that comes to mind? One particular book? Yeah, I read a book recently called uh, The Devil Brings You Home. And I don't usually read books like this. It was like a sort of a neo-noir with some magic mixed in. It was a really interesting read. It was kind of a tough read. I usually don't read books like that because there was like a lot of death in it. But it w- it had a very interesting and I think profound message about choices and accountability and redemption. And so I got like I got halfway through and I was like I don't know if I can finish it. It's too gory. <laughs> and I finished it and at the end I was like that ended up being kind of a beautiful story. I mean it ended tragically. But it ended up being the story about redemption and and making choices that are meaningful to you and are, are c- coming from the right place and and not living with anger. 
in your life. And I was like, you know, in the end, it was a tough read, but I'm glad I read it. And it was really well written, very well written. So making choices that are good for you and not carrying in your life. I think it's a beautiful way to close our conversation. Tanjia, first of all, Thank you so much for everything that you're doing for other people right now, leading that community. And then thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. And, you know, thank you for giving us some space to talk about BIPOC podcast creators. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play you a song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for authentic leadership for everyday people. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, recorded, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's called Diamond Days, and it's from her album All Is Quiet. start out looking like a jewel we're all rough around the edges unfinished a little jagged too we're not ready for the ring not cut out for crowns a buried treasure waiting But it takes patience and pressure and feeling lost in the dark In the hard work, in the hard times we find out who we are Something beautiful is taking shape We can't hurry through Diamond days In the moment The slow passing The long and lonely nights We don't notice all the changes The hammer, the chisel The struggle bring to life But somewhere underneath Weight of earth and time The stone that is a heart begins to shine But it 